Good evening, everyone. I'm Doug Elmendorf. I'm the dean of the Harvard Kennedy School. I'm delighted to welcome you tonight to the Kennedy School and to the John F. Kennedy Jr. Forum. We are honored to be joined by Congressman Joaquin Castro, who represents the 20th Congressional District of Texas in the United States House of Representatives. Yeah. We are. <laughs> We're also honored to be kicking off the conference, America Adelante, Latino Leadership and Influence in the United States. As you know, this country is undergoing a profound demographic shift in which the men and women of Hispanic origin or descent are representing an increasingly large share of the US population. In a few years, that share will be about a fifth, substantially above where it was a few decades ago, and on a path to be substantially larger still a few decades from now. With that dramatic growth in the Latino population will inevitably come a significant increase in Latino influence in this country and the attention paid to public policies that are especially important to Latinos and in the need for Latino public leaders. Our mission Our mission at the Kennedy School is to train future public leaders and to help current leaders address the challenges they see. For us to be effective at that mission in the face of this demographic shift requires us to pay more attention over time to public policy issues that are particularly important to Latinos and more attention over time to training Latino public leaders. That will be a long journey for the Kennedy School of many steps, and this conference is an important step in that journey. I am very grateful to the Center for Public Leadership at the Kennedy School for organizing this conference. We should give them a round of applause for that. I'm grateful to the many speakers, distinguished guests, and students from across Harvard University will be participating. I'm grateful to the Institute of Politics at the Kennedy School for co-sponsoring tonight's talk. And I'm very eager, as you are, for the conversation with Congressman Castro. We are especially fortunate to have as a moderator tonight, David Gergen. David is a professor of public service at the Kennedy School <laughs> and is co-director of the Center for Public Leadership David is an important public figure in many realms. He has served in the White House as an advisor to Presidents Nixon, Ford, Reagan, and Clinton. He was the chief editor of US News and World Report. He has been a, a frequent commenter on public affairs for decades. He has been part of uh, political analysis teams that have won two Emmy Awards and two Peabody Awards for Distinguished Public Service by broadcasters. And you can see him, of course, on CNN. But we are very, very lucky at the Kennedy School that he has devoted himself here to the training of future public leaders and to helping future leaders have the most successful, uh, fulfilling, and consequential careers they could have. We are so lucky to have him uh, here with us in general, and particularly to moderate tonight, I'll turn it over to David. Thank 
Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you. I, I'm particularly glad you're here tonight to uh, welcome in our new dean. Uh, he had big shoes to fill, but he is doing it wonderfully well. He's off to a terrific start, and he's very action-oriented. You don't always find that in the university. So we're moving off on a lot of things, but one of the first things we're doing is having this conference, and we're delighted to welcome all of you who have come here to the conference. Our number one choice to kick this off was Congressman Castro. Yeah, uh, Joaquin, uh, I, we don't know each other well, but we have been together on several occasions, and uh, I've watched his career with enormous admiration uh, and an al also a great sense of hope, a great sense of hope, because I think that he brings the qualities to leadership that we need far more of than we have. Uh, and if he, he's got a twin brother, identical twin brother, I, it's hard to tell them apart, frankly, uh, so they can always fill in for each other. You know, you guys can always substitute for each other. He won't uh, come to Congress. Uh, he won't he come, to Congress. To come to Congress. Well, yeah. well it'd be interesting. You know, he's Secretary of Housing and Urban Development. He'd been mayor of San Antonio. Uh, just when you were running for, for Congress, he ran for mayor. But anyway, the, the, let's go back to the Castro history a bit. Uh, is their grandfather who first came here about 100 years ago? And then their, their, uh, their mother, Rosie, uh, was, uh, was really one. She was a community activist. And their dad, who was a school teacher, uh, really instilled them and, and them a sense of civic uh, engagement uh, and, and civic progress. Uh, these two identical brothers coming out of the San Antonio area went to Stanford together, did extremely well out there, and then they came here to the Harvard Law School. Uh, they graduated in 2000. 2000. 2000. So he's a, he's a newbie in many ways. But strikingly, at the age of 28, he ran for the state legislature in Texas and won there repeatedly um, and then ran for the Congress. And you're in your now your second term. Second term. Uh, do you have much opposition for your third? Uh, no, I, I have a libertarian and a green candidate, so I, I should be all right. I think you're okay. <laughs> <laughs> should be all right. I think you're okay. Um, and he, he's there, among other things, on the House uh, Armed Services Committee, where our own recent graduate, Seth Moulton, as, as you know, is a member. So they become, they become uh, colleagues. Um, but I just, I cannot emphasize enough, I've had the privilege of working with a number of Latino uh, leaders over the years. He's one of the best. He's really one of the best. Thank Keep you your eye on him. He's got a long, he's gonna make a major contribution to this country. Now, Joaquin, let's cut, cut to the chase. Yes. Yeah, this, you, you, you may be coasting to re-election and congratulations, but you also must be very troubled by the campaign that we're in. Yeah. Here we have a Latino community, Hispanic community, often they're used interchangeably, that is primarily concerned with jobs and with education. And they work hard, they've got wonderful work ethic, and yet the Latino population has been the target of the vitriol, especially the undocumented walls, deportation, rounding up 11 million people, and can you imagine the possibility of rounding up 11 million people and coming in with a knock on the door at night jerking someone out of his bed, taking a father or a mother away from a child. It's just, it's just unimaginable. But there the rhetoric has been, and it's had an impact. And I just wonder, how, how do you struggle with that? How do we deal with this? Uh, well, David, first I want to say thank you. And, and of course, it's always great to see you and spend time with you. Congratulations on a long and successful career, mm -hmm. a very distinguished career. 
to the dean and everybody uh, at the Kennedy School, uh, at the Center, and at the Institute for Politics. Thank you for inviting me uh, to the organizers of the Adelante Conference. Uh, thank you for thinking of me, inviting me here to be here, to be here with you, and uh, thank you for picking me over my brother. Uh, <laughs> you know, it, that, it doesn't happen that much these days, so thank you. <laughs> Uh, I see some friends in the audience that are here, so it's wonderful to see some old and long-standing friends. Uh, this has been a very troubling election season, and there are folks here who are, more, who are more junior to me and folks, as I look around the room, who are more senior to me, but I think no matter your age, you would probably agree that this is the strangest and most bizarre election cycle that we have lived through. And it certainly seems right now, several months from the November election, that the stakes are higher than they've ever been uh, and that that's not an exaggeration in 2016. It, to answer your question, David, I think it's troubling because I feel like uh, Donald Trump obviously is a front runner for the Republican nomination and I feel like he kicked off his campaign with a slander, uh, that he slandered a whole population of people. Uh, he slandered immigrants, he slandered Latinos, uh, but not just Latinos and immigrants, but I think he, he slandered uh, the history of the United States and the country and the way that we were built by people from all over the world coming here, seeking a better life and working hard and applying their talent and their hard work to make this country better. And so it has been very disturbing to see him winning so handily. I think he's won something like 19 out of 29 or 30 states. Uh, and to me, it's, it's a signal obviously of the, of the division in the country and also the fact that the next president, whoever that is, and I'm, I'm supporting Secretary Clinton, but whoever the next president is, is gonna have a long way to go in making sure that the country comes back together. Yeah, well, it, it may well be that the tide is finally turning on the Trump campaign. Uh, there, his behavior over the last days has suggested he may even have a death wish right. that he wants out in some fashion. Uh, we'll see. Wisconsin is very important next week. But even if Donald Trump drops out, there's Ted Cruz with yeah. much the same language, much the same position than as the, as the likely alternative. Right. And you know him from Texas. And tell us about him and about, is this serious? Are, these, are, they, are they serious about doing this? And if so, how do you see it unfolding? Well, I think you're right. I think the, the Republican primary is gonna get more competitive. I think they're gonna have a tough choice to make uh, when the convention comes around. It's looking like nobody will have probably yeah. the delegates they need to win. Uh, the, the, you know, the problem I think they're gonna have with, with not nominating Trump is that he has the support of the base of the Republican Party that is most passionate. And quite honestly, if you look at the rallies and everything that's gone on, some <laughs> of the folks in the party, and I'm not saying that, that mainstream Republicans will claim them always, but some in the party that have also been the nastiest online, in person, uh, within the party. So to try to strip them of a nominee is going to be tough. But it looks like if that's possible and if somebody else is gonna win, then it looks like it may well be Senator Cruz from Texas. Yeah. Uh, he is, of course, somebody who uh, was Solicitor General of Texas for several years, uh, had a distinguished legal career as an appellate lawyer, uh, but really rode the, has rode the, been on the Tea Party wave uh, yeah. for several years now, successfully, and really harnessed the energy that came about in 2010 through the Tea Party, and now has moved the Republican Party and Ted Cruz further and further to the right. But he is a Cuban-American. 
Mm -hmm. uh, how, what's his relationship like with the Latino population generally in Texas? Uh, I would say that it's a strained one because of his policy positions. Right. Uh, it's a strained one because he's been so virulent against uh, comprehensive immigration reform, for example, mm -hmm. in Texas. And in Texas, you have many Democrats, but also a lot of Republicans who believe that we ought to find a pragmatic solution on immigration. And, and Senator Cruz has been somebody at every turn who has tried to stop that from happening. And so he, he, you know, he's lost a lot of support of the Republican business groups and constituency, for example, because of that. So, so the, the, the likelihood it, it is that Mrs. Clinton will be the nominee of the Democratic Party. Um, we'll have to see who comes out of the Republican Party. And she will enter the race as a favorite, the, the November race as a favorite. She's running 10 points ahead now of, of, of Trump, but a few points ahead of Cruz. But I think if you look at the demographics in particular, it's just hard to see how she gets beaten unless there's something untoward happens. How, how if there is a Clinton presidency, how can we best proceed as a country to heal the wounds and find sensible solutions that, the, that will be respectful of the Latino community and yet bring the country together. Is there a path forward? Uh, there is. I'm hopeful that, that this is a, an ugly moment that we're living through. Uh, every once in a while in American politics, our politics can become a race to the bottom. And I think unfortunately as Americans, we are living in one of those periods. But the good and hopeful thing about the American people is that I believe we've always bounced back. And that if you look at the history of this country, it is one where we are constantly evolving closer and closer to the ideals set out in the founding principles mm -hmm. uh, and in our founding documents. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that doesn't mean that it's going to be easy for us to come back together. Uh, I think that hopefully President Clinton uh, will be installed in January of next year and that the first, her first job, aside from legislation, will be healing that rift in the country. Yeah, but what, but what concretely do you think can be accomplished to, to, so that we can move beyond these immigration debates? Well, I think that what she's got to do is reach out to Mitch McConnell. She's got to reach out to Paul Ryan. Uh, and I do see some hope with Paul Ryan. You know, I came in, of course, when Speaker Boehner was in office, and now Speaker Ryan has taken over. And since he's taken over, there have been more major pieces of legislation that have moved. Uh, he gave what I thought was a well-received address uh, including taking back some of his previous statements on poverty, which I thought was both wise of him, uh, but also showed a lot of grace uh, in a time that has been a very difficult time in the nation. So I think that she's got to work with the two of them. And we keep talking about defining elections that tell us which way or another we should go. We haven't had one in a long time. <laughs> yeah, you know, but I hope that 2016 will be one of those elections and that the writing will be on the wall that the three of them will be able to work together uh, mm -hmm. to, you know, to move forward on immigration. You know, David, that immigration reform had a chance of passing in 2014, mm -hmm. but because of the Hastert rule, the Speaker didn't put it on the House floor for a vote. You might explain the Hastert rule yeah. so everybody understands. You know, when we think of what holds up legislation in Congress, a lot of people think of the filibuster in the Senate. Well, in the House, the culprit is the Hastert rule. In the mid-1990s, uh, first under Newt Gingrich and the Contract with America, there was an informal rule that was developed, and the rule essentially said this, that the Speaker of the House will not put a piece of legislation on the floor for a vote unless it already has the support of a majority of the majority. So practically speaking, what that means is that you won't put anything up for a vote 
unless it has the support of a majority of Republicans. So with immigration, you had about 200 Democrats at the time and then about 25 or 30 Republicans. Over the 218 threshold you need to pass it, but obviously not half of the Republican Party in Congress. So the Speaker uh, didn't put it on the House floor for a vote. Sure. And so concretely, with regard to the 11 million undocumented folks who are here, um, she has, Mrs. Clinton has spoken out very strongly in favor of a path to citizenship. Right. Many Republicans are opposed to any path out. They just say deport them. But there are some Republicans who say, fair, fair number actually, who say a path, we don't support a path to citizenship, but we support a path to legalization. Now what the difference is, the Republicans are scared to death. If people, all these people get the vote, they become citizens, they become the vote, Texas is gonna turn blue like that, right? And Joaquin will be, you know, be king of the mountain, right? <laughs> okay, uh, so, but there, there's, you know, you, you can understand why they say that, wow, but maybe we'll yeah. go for a path. Do you, is there a compromise there that can be struck? I believe there is. Um, you're right, I mean, Democrats were holding out for a path to citizenship. Right. Uh, early on, most Republicans certainly were not where the, where the presidential candidates are now, right. which is basically mass deportation. Uh, many of them were arguing for some kind of legalization. Right. Uh, I think that hopefully we'll get back to that place where we're essentially in an area where we can compromise. Um, yeah, I think it's possible to get back there, and I think that we will get back there. You do. That's interesting. That's helpful. So in terms of the Latino population itself, uh, you've uh, argued for an infrastructure of opportunity. Can you tell yeah. us what that, that's been a, yeah. a phrase that has characterized much of your leadership? Yeah. Well, you know, the way I see the Latino community and many immigrant communities throughout our history is that they're aspirational communities. So they're working their way up the American socioeconomic ladder. And the beauty of this country, and I think what's distinguished us among the nations of the world, in other words, why people from all over the world have wanted to come here, you think about it, I'm from South Texas and I've met a lot of immigrants over the years. Nobody's ever told me that they came here looking for the lowest corporate tax rate, right? <laughs> People come here mostly for a few reasons, because they're fleeing oppression, so they're seeking freedom, or because they're seeking a place of opportunity. So what we've done ingeniously together is build an infrastructure of opportunity. And this is what I mean by that. Just as there's an infrastructure of roads and streets and highways that helps all of us get to where we wanna go on the road, in America, there is an infrastructure of opportunity that helps all of us get to where we wanna go in life. You think about what those institutions are in a society. Great schools and universities, a strong healthcare system so that if you become ill, you can see a doctor or go to a hospital, an economy that's built around well-paying jobs so that when you work hard, you can support yourself and your family. There are, of course, other pieces, but those are the main building blocks. And I think that's what's drawn people to this country, and that's what's helped Latinos and others move up that socioeconomic ladder. So let me give you some specific examples that to me represent that infrastructure of opportunity. And they occur through all of us coming together through the government. You know, it can, it can be private also, but I'm gonna give you a few government examples because over the last several years, people have been very down about the function of the government, right? What's the purpose of government? Well, you think about college students, you know, those, those here who are students. Uh, my brother and I went to, started school at Stanford in 1992, in the fall of 1992. And around that time, just before we left for school, we were living with, my parents were together until I was eight years old, and we were living with my mom and my grandmother. So my mom was a single mom. 
And my mom around that time had made about $20,000. And Stanford back then cost about $30,000, which seems very cheap now, I know. Uh, but you know, it was $30,000 and she was trying to send two sons off to school and there was no way that we could have done it unless there were federal grants and federal loans that were available to help us get through it. And there was also work study that was available for us to do it. So that's one example. I take the example of my grandmother, another program later in life. My grandmother, you know, she came here when she was six years old as an orphan. My brother at the DNC a few years ago told some of her story, but she and her sister, she was six years old, her sister was four. And both their parents died around the time of the Mexican Revolution. My grandmother never graduated from elementary school even. She never finished elementary school. So she worked her whole life as a maid, a babysitter, and a cook. Her family and she worked in the fields at different times. And so after working most of her childhood and all of her adulthood in these jobs, the only thing she had to her name, she never owned a house, she never owned a car, I don't think she ever had a bank account. The only thing she had was a $335 a month Social Security check. She lived with my mom, you know, her whole life, basically, because she right. couldn't afford to live alone. So that's another example, Social Security for our senior citizens. These represent government interventions that create opportunity and security, financial security in the case of Social Security, for people at different stages of their life. The GI Bill is another example for veterans who've returned home. Uh, SBA loans for entrepreneurs who want to go and start a business. That represents another way that we come together and help people you know, pursue their American dream. And so I feel like in a lot of the rhetoric about smaller government uh, and a lot of the hostility towards government, and some of it has been deserved at times, right? But in all of that, we've lost sight of the fact that it's through government and business and the community that we have created this infrastructure of opportunity mm -hmm. that allows America to be what the world thinks we are, which we have always been, which is a place of opportunity. So help us understand. Thank you. You go to Stanford, you get these big loans. Yeah. You must have had quite a burden coming out of there. Then you go to well, the Harvard Law School. Well, I'm still paying school. off the Harvard Law School loan. <laughs> well, I'm not surprised. But how the heck, with all these loans, did you run for the state legislature yeah. at 28 and make this work? Yeah, that was a man, that was a tough decision. Uh, we grew up, in, like I said, in a household. I left this part of the story out, but my mom was the first in our family who got very active. My mom was a baby boomer. Uh, she's in her late 60s now. And she was very involved in the Mexican-American civil rights movement. And you know, my mom and my dad had grown up at a time in Texas where there were still some signs over Texas establishments that read, no dogs or Mexicans allowed. Right. And it was just a very, you know, very different time, and thankfully we've come a long way as a state and a nation. Uh, but you know, my mom was born in 1947 and my dad in 1940. So that really, uh, that really sparked their fire in changing the world that they grew up around and the world they knew. And so they got involved in the Mexican-American Civil Rights Movement. And so my brother and I, growing up in that household, really developed, I think, a civic conscience from mm -hmm. that upbringing and so we were always interested in politics and public service. Uh, my brother was more gung-ho than I was about doing it at such a young age. Right. My brother got elected to the city council at 26, <laughs> and uh, he had his first fundraiser, actually, for city council here in Cambridge. Uh, <laughs> was he still uh, in school? He was. He was we, were in our, our, we were three L's at law school, 
and he raised about $2,000 in seed money from about 80 friends at the law school, yeah. uh, and that was the kickoff of his campaign. <laughs> uh, and, and I, you know, and I, we both went to work at Aiken Gump, which at the time was the largest yeah. law firm in the city, and I worked there for about a year and then decided to run for state representative. Uh, I left my job, I quit my job at Aiken Gump in around August or early September of 2001. And I, you know, I was taking on a Democratic incumbent, so I knew there was no way that I was gonna be able to build 2,000 hours a year, whatever the requirement is, and also run this race. So I had saved up, I guess, about $24,000, $25,000. I put $4,000 into my, four, I took $4,000 and, and put it into my campaign account. And I ended up spending about $24,000 for the whole primary. Uh, and then, you know, ran in a, uh, one of my, my district was one of the swing districts in Texas, so I had the Democrat in March and then the Republican in November. But it worked out. Was, <laughs> it, was it a full-time job going to state legislature? Uh, well, we, it's, it's 140 days every other year, yeah, uh, so although that, those first few years, I think my first session in 03 and then my second session in 05, we were in special session a lot. That was under Governor Perry. Um, so the challenging thing about Texas is that the state legislative job only pays about $600 a month. Uh, so, except you get a per diem when you're in session. That really helped with the loans, right? Yeah, yeah, I know, that was tough. So you had to have another job. So ultimately, I went back to practicing law. Uh, my brother, same thing. I mean, on city council, uh, yeah, they were working, he was working long hours every day on council and as mayor, uh, mm -hmm. but he was only getting paid 20 or $40 a week. It's interesting. So, your brother really showed, and he was a very successful mayor, and you've now worked at the federal level. Mm -hmm. Do you have some view about where change should come from now? Because you've been involved with change from the top down, but you've also been involved with change and through the state legislature and through your brother, change from the bottom up. And I, I, we, we're taught where a number of our students now, instead of going to Washington, they think about, I think I'll go work for a city. And yeah. we're, we're pursuing city initiatives here at the Kennedy School. Well, I think as, as Washington has become more gridlocked over the last several years, yeah. people are looking to states and county and city governments as ways yeah. to actually get something done. And, you know, it's always, it's, it's funny sometimes uh, I'll see people knock local government or even the mayor's job and I think about the incredible things that my brother was able to do in San Antonio. They raised the sales tax an eighth of a cent, for example, to expand pre-kindergarten education so that San Antonio offers the most pre-K of any Texas city. Uh, they redeveloped downtown, uh, the housing stock there, uh, created uh, really a high-tech industry. Uh, and so, you know, he, it had started already, but he really helped develop it. You know, so he was able to do a lot of incredible things with 10 other people on the city council, uh, which, you know, uh, it's, it's tougher to, to do those things as swiftly in a larger body. Right. Uh, and I certainly, especially if you're in the minority party, uh, if you're in the minority party, it's really tough. Right. But, but both of you have had, a, have had a strikingly good relationship with the business community. Mm -hmm. that, that he got a lot of votes in San Antonio. He, sure. The sales tax in part was because the business community respected him. How did you manage that as a, as a Democrat, as a Latino, as, you know, with a lot of voices out there probably behind you who probably don't think much of the business community? How did you manage to form partnerships and alliances to make things work? Uh, that's a great question. You know, you're right. When my brother f floated the pre-K initiative, uh, the two people who headed it up were uh, Charles Butt, who in San Antonio, in Texas, has the HEB 
grocery stores and is the wealthiest person in San Antonio. And then um, Joe Robles, who was the head of USAA, right. which is, you know, an insurance giant, has a, a real estate component to it, but is, you know, it's more of a, a little bit more of a conservative organization or business. But both of them work to help pass that. And I think, you know, we developed those relationships over the years with people. Uh, and I think that most of all, people want to know that, that you're going to take their opinion into account, that you're going to explain why you believe what you believe, that you're going to listen to them even if you disagree with them. Mm -hmm. uh, so much of politics is people talking past each other without ever really dealing with each other. Uh, and I feel like, uh, you know, some of the people that I was closest to in Texas, uh, in the legislature, uh, of course I had a lot of Democratic friends, but where people were, Repu were Republicans, strong mm -hmm. Republicans that I disagreed with, and they disagreed with me, but we were able to do some work together uh, because we respected each other. Same thing in Congress, you know, the benefit of being in the minority party, whether you're Republican or Democrat, is that it forces you to work with the other side because when you're in the minority, you can't just go out and vote somebody. You know, you're not just gonna beat them with numbers. You have to reach across the aisle. And so everything that I've done in Congress, um, all of the legislation that I've worked on, all the amendments that I've passed, all of that has required the support of the majority party. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Otherwise, you know, they'll just shut you down. Yeah. Let me ask you about the, um, uh, a conversation I've had over the last five years with a number of CEOs, uh, especially of a privately owned, owned company, especially in a manufacturing, but company after company CEO has told me their experience in the last 10 years or so has been that the people with the best work ethics uh, are Latinos. Uh, that in particular, white Caucasian males come in, they're on their electronics all the time, they want a nine to five, they see this as a part-time job, or at least it's not gonna last very long. You ask them to do overtime, they'll never come in. You know, they're just not interested. They're there to punch the clock and, and move on. And you got these Latinos who come in, they're hungry, and they want the job, and they want the, you know, they want the, they need the income. And they work really hard, you ask them to come in over the weekend on part, overtime, boom, they're there. And they're high performance, highly reliable, and they're just, they're it's sort of one of the untold stories yeah. that I've found uh, about the Latino community. I'm wondering how people can become, we can, under, we can change the narrative, the public narrative about what the Latino community represents. And by the way, when we've had guy, Latino guys and Latinos here, the Latinos, Actually, we've had them here on several occasions. They really go past the, the guys. So I, the, the work ethic is even, and the performance level of the Latinos is really high. Uh, but, but people, the country at large does not understand that. No, and I think that's why, you know, when I heard Donald Trump's statements, uh, it's exactly the opposite of the reality. Uh, you have people who come here as immigrants and are incredibly hungry and driven uh, and, and are just, really out there just busting their asses, you know, working hard for themselves and their family members, and then to be slandered like that. And you also have, you know, Mexican-Americans and, and Puerto Ricans and Dominicans and Cuban-Americans and folks who are second and third and fourth and fifth generation Americans, right? Um, and who are also out there uh, working hard for their families. Uh, but you're right, I mean, I think there's a mischaracterization there that allows for a resentment uh, mm -hmm. to really take over. Mm -hmm. uh, and then a resentment that can be stoked by politicians, unfortunately, for their own gain. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's, that's what we're seeing some of now. If you were to say the number one public policy advancement 
that you'd like to see that would really open up these opportunities further for Latino community? What would it be? Might it be the strengthening of community colleges? What, what kind of thing would you say? It would certainly be in education. Uh, you know, I spent a lot of time in Texas and now in Congress on higher education, making sure that we have more students that go on to college and graduate from college. Mm -hmm. One of the challenges that we have is the access challenge of getting people into college. You know, that includes challenges like college advising. Uh, I'm on the board of an organization called the College Advising Corps that does the same thing Teach for America does, except instead of putting students in school to do teaching, they put them in school to do just college advising. So college advising uh, and financial really? aid. Really, I mean, they come in like, it's like a job? It's like a, yeah, it's no, a it's, it's just job? like Teach for America. They do it for a year or two, yeah. and they place them in a lot of rural and inner city schools, mm -hmm. and they'll go out, and all they do is, is college advising. And the reason I identified that as such an important space is because our college advising system vis-a-vis -vis our counselors is really an anachronism. Right. In California, for example, I remember a few years ago, the ratio of counselors to students was one counselor to 900 students. In Texas, it was one to 420. Mm -hmm. And so, especially with the Latino community and other communities, what you have are a lot of students, many of them very talented, but they go home to parents that may not have gone to college, and so they don't have help at home figuring out how to fill out a FAFSA or a school application. And then they go to school and we've, we have a system set up that doesn't provide the guidance for them to you know, get the best advice about which schools to apply to, about how to get scholarships and financial aid. So the way I describe it is there are a lot of important things that happen outside the classroom but still inside the school. You know, Somewhere along the way we conflated two different functions and often what you'll hear is we aim to have people college ready, right? Well, college ready is a, a description about some, somebody's substantive knowledge in a subject matter, right? I'm college ready. In other words, I've learned everything I need to learn to go on to college. But making sure that somebody is substantively prepared to go to college is not the same thing as setting up a guidance system to actually push them on to college. And in that arena, we've come up way short. So this organization works in that space. Oh, really interesting. And, and can you measure success? Yeah, no, they've increased the number of students in the schools that they're in. In Texas, uh, they've got about 320, I should say we as I'm part of the board, uh, we've got about 320 uh, college advisors in different schools. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we've, in most of those schools, if not all of them, we've increased the number of students who have gone on to college and also increase the number of students who have gone on, for example, to flagship universities, uh, state flagship universities, uh, Harvard, Princeton, Yale, Stanford. Because the other challenge we've seen in the Latino community is that even the brightest students, their horizons are often muted, right? Their horizons are often not as broad as they could be. And, and let me tell you a quick story, David, which is typical of what I've seen over the years. My brother and I, when we graduated from Stanford, you know, we used to do this when we were at Stanford and we did some of it when we were at Harvard. We would go back to our neighborhood and we would recruit for Stanford, for our universe, our, our college. You know, you're proud of where you went and you want other people to go there. And so we were at Lanier High School in San Antonio one time. Lanier High School is in the middle of the west side. It's the high school across for when, where I went to middle school. And the area sits across the street from the largest housing project in the city, the Alasana Facha Courts. 
And it's about probably 95% Mexican-American, uh, low income. And I was, we set up a table, we, we, we had a banner made at Kinko's, it said Stanford University, <laughs> and uh, we asked the university to send us some pamphlets to hand out. So my brother and I are standing there at lunch behind this table, you know, uh, we're standing there and we got the banner out and we got the information out. And there were only a few people that were coming by to pick up information, you know, and, and yeah, I'm 20 something and you think everybody should be going there, right? So there was a guy, a student that came over and the student, uh, you know, we talked to him a little bit and, and he said, uh, ultimately he said, you know, if you were here uh, recruiting for San Antonio College, which is the community college, then you would have a lot more people coming over. And to me, that was an indication of the fact that sometimes people will limit their horizons. Mm -hmm. they'll, they'll artificially limit their horizons. Uh, and mm -hmm. I think um, part of it, I know part of it is because I grew up in the neighborhood, you know, uh, before I went off to college, when I showed up to Stanford, that was the first time I visited. I'd never visited before. I, I, we showed up with three right. bags each. Right. And, and people don't get to leave their neighborhood very much. I certainly didn't. Uh, and so we've got to do a better job of broadening people's horizons, having them apply to these wonderful places. Uh, when I was in school here, I remember I was in my, in my second year of law school. And I was, I was in an afternoon class. And I remember looking around the classroom and finally slowing down a little bit, appreciating how fortunate I was to be at Harvard Law School with some of the brightest minds from all over the country and all over the world. And as I slowed down, I looked around and I realized that I think I was the only Latino in that classroom. Mm. And it made me at once sad, but also mm. gave me a lot of hope. It made me sad because I thought of all of the potential of people uh, and, I, and you know, you never want to be the only one there. But it gave me a lot of hope because I realized as I looked around and I also reflected back on finishing Stanford and now being at Harvard, that a lot of the people that were in that classroom were just like the people that I sat in class with at Tafoya Middle School and Jefferson High School in San Antonio. Mm. And that if you had put some of the people that I went to high school with in that classroom with me, and the others that they would have done just as well as I did or better and just as well as a lot of the students who were speaking up in class that day. Yeah. So when I went home, I resolved that I was gonna do something to improve that. Hmm. Well, we here at the Kennedy School are determined to open up more opportunities for the Latino community. We wanna open the doors and we're trying to raise scholarship money, fellowship money for more Latinos to come here. Uh, we, think it's, we think it's an essential mission of the school. Uh, and we're going to get there. I don't know quite Thank how, you. but we're going to get there. Maybe we'll need you to go out and get, print up a <laughs> banner and stand behind the table. We'll buy uh, the banner again uh, and we'll yeah, go out wherever. Yeah. yeah. But but uh, let me ask you one more question, then we're going to go to questions from sure. the floor. And uh, I'll just say, if you want to get ready to ask a question, there there is a microphone back there. There's a microphone here. And there should be one there, and there's one in the second floor. So please feel free to take a mic and and, and, and ask your question. But I'm, 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 I'm the next four, 24 hours or so, the f folks who've come here for this Adelante conference are going to be uh, asking the question about how do we prepare a bigger, well, you know, stronger um, uh, generation of leaders for the Latino, out of the Latino community, not for Latinos, but for America. Uh, because what we want to do is create more seats at the table.
Sure. This is not about asking anybody to leave the table. It's about enlarging the table yeah. and making sure there are more people there. And you know, we're going to so people are going to be here you know, talking about that. What what it, what um, what are your thoughts about that, that that can help us get started at, uh, on, on that conversation? I think in, in each of the industries, um, you know, you think about major industries in the United States, uh, whether it's academia, the finance industry, entertainment industry, uh, politics. The Latino community is underrepresented, and in, in many of those industries, right. woefully underrepresented. So I think the most important thing in each of those areas is to create pipelines to allow people to move into finance, to move into academia, uh, you know, to move in into different places. Mm -hmm. And it starts with things like internships. Uh, it starts with you know entry-level jobs, promotions to manager, and so forth. Do they need role models in the C-suites? Arnie Duncan has argued to me several times, the most important thing we need to do in education is get more minorities into the C-suites because they will convince sure. a lot of other people you can sure. make it. No, I think that's right. I think people need, you know, one thing that I always tell students back home in high school who are going on to college is that they are trailblazers for their younger brothers and sisters and cousins and other friends in the neighborhood that people are watching your success, including your success, you are helping people believe that they can achieve something who are coming up behind you. When somebody from your high school hears that you went to Harvard or Yale or UT Austin or whatever, there is a piece of them that believes that they can do it too. And the challenge for all of us is to help them believe that they can do that. You know, unfortunately, one of the traps that we sometimes fall into, and this is what I tell the folks at the College Advising Corps who are going into our high schools, is Always believe that the people that you're advising and mentoring can achieve more things than you did. Hmm. Sometimes we limit other people's, what we think are other people's abilities by the limitations that we've seen or placed on ourselves. You know, so for example, if I'm in Congress, I should believe that some Latino younger than me could be the first president of the United States. You know, not say, well, I couldn't become a governor, I couldn't become a senator, so I don't think you can either, right? So we should always believe that the people behind us can do even more and help them do that. But I think that's a big part of it, certainly what y'all are doing and things like this. Uh, and the active work that you're taking on is invaluable. So thank you for that, David. Thank you. Please, yeah, and, and if you can come forward, if you can, uh, we have what we call the Joe Nye rules here. Please tell us who you are. There's one question per customer. <laughs> and please remember that a question ends with a question mark. Yes, please. Perfect. Thank you. My name is Norma Torres Mendoza. I'm a second year here, and I'm from the great state of Texas. Uh, which part? Houston. We actually oh, met right. this summer. <laughs> all right. Good to see you again. Um, so my question is, though, what does it mean for you to be a leader from the Latino community? A lot of my colleagues here are under the assumption that they could lead the same way that other Latino leaders lead. Is that true? What would be your thoughts? What does it mean to be a leader from this community? Well, I think that, that you're a role model, I think, hopefully, if you conduct yourself well uh, and work in earnest, a role model for others. I also think that, you know, I represent a district that's about 64% Latino. So there's an incredible overlap, obviously, in the interest of the Latino community and the interest of my district overall. So for me and my role, that's not a hard thing. You know, a lot of the people that I represent uh, are working class folks, like, you know, where I came from. And they're concerned about bread and butter issues like education, healthcare, jobs. Uh, and so I feel like for me, there's been a, a pretty good symmetry there um, in addressing 
those issues. Thank you, please. Hello, my name is Cassandra Federa. I'm a full-time employee at the Harvard Physics Department, a part-time student at the Harvard Extension School, and also a commissioner for the city of Somerville. We talk a lot about preparing the future to absorb Latinos or prepare Latinos for future leader posi leadership positions, but for the Latinos who are struggling currently and in a lot of student loan debt with rising housing prices, how can we help repair the damage that has already been done? Well, that's a great question. You know, particularly in certain cities uh, where housing, where the housing prices have continued to go up, uh, and also because people were hit hard during the Great Recession and its after effects, uh, I saw a statistic that of all the communities in the United States, the Latino community as a community large, lost the largest percentage of its assets, its net worth, much of it because people lost their homes uh, during, because of what happened in 2008, early 2009. Uh, and so, you know, that's why when I talk about programs like student loans, when we think about, uh, you know, low interest loans for buying homes, when we think about rental assistance through HUD, which my brother runs, all of these are ways that we come together to help people out. Uh, and I think that we have to not lose sight of it. I think we have to understand how valuable it is. Uh, and that's tough when the mantra for many years has been about, you know, always shrinking government, uh, but you know, we, need to, we need to push back on it. Mm. Please. Hi, Congressman Castro. Thank you so much for being here. Um, my name's Andrea Ortiz. I'm a senior here at the college, aspiring immigration lawyer, and really excited to just have you here. Um, as a 1.5 Mexican-American and having done a lot of work with immigrants who are coming to our country and seeing um, how parallel that is to my own family's story, I'm sad and despaired to hear and, and sort of visualize the kind of violations of human rights that are happening in immigrant detention centers today. Right. A lot of detention centers that have been opened by the Obama administration and have been maintained. And so I wonder, when we think of like what the Latino community should rally around and how immigration has been sort of placed as one of our issues, we can think about immigrant detention centers and the current human rights violations that are happening today and incorporate that into our language and our rhetoric mm -hmm. and what we're advocating for. Sure. No, you know, uh, several months ago, a group of us, myself, Luis Gutierrez, uh, Steny Hoyer, and several others, visited the detention centers at Carnes and Dilly, in, which are both about an hour away from San Antonio, and argued that they should be closed and that there is a more humane way uh, to make sure that you're keeping track of where people are. Uh, and so the Obama administration over the last several months, you'll notice, has sh significantly shrunk the number of people who were there. Uh, but I agree, I think there's a better way to do it. Uh, and I also will say that I consider many of those folks that came over, particularly the folks from the, the Northern Triangle countries of Central America, uh, who came here 60 or 70,000, uh, well really more than that since 2015, but in 2015, uh, about that number. I consider many of those folks refugees who were fleeing violence and fleeing of um, I also, you know, I also filed legislation uh, to change the language around undocumented immigrants. Uh, in federal code, we still use the word illegal alien. I saw that the Library of Congress just changed the vernacular to non-citizen, right? Um, so I believe that in government code, we ought to change those things. When we think of the word alien, we think of Martians and people from outer space. Uh, and really, it's a way to dehumanize people 
And, and don't get me wrong, look, there are people who will sometimes say the word illegal alien who don't mean it in a mean or even pejorative way, right? That's just how they know to refer to people. Uh, some people do mean it in a pejorative way. But whatever the case, I believe that there's a more humane way to talk about it. And so I'm going to continue to press that in the coming years. Please, sir. Uh, my name is Jonathan Lane. I'm originally from San Antonio, Texas. All right. Good to see you. What Good high school did you, you go to? I'm sorry? Which high school? Uh, Churchill. Churchill Chargers. All right. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm an MPA student here at the Kennedy School, dual degree student with MIT Sloan School of Management. Um, I guess being from Texas myself, I'm particularly interested in your views, uh, kind of having converts with other congressional Democrats. Yeah. Uh, other than kind of a path to citizenship and demographic trends, what do you see as the two or three key ingredients to turning Texas blue? Yeah. Uh, it's, uh -huh. uh, man. Yeah. Uh, it's certainly possible in the coming years. It's tough. You know, uh, we got beat bad in 2014, you know. Um, we got beat by about 20 or 21 points. But really, I, I don't think that was just a Texas thing. That was, if you look, there were significant losses across the country. Uh, there's, there are about six or eight pieces of infrastructure that need to be built out and are starting to be built out in Texas to make Democrats competitive statewide. But until those, until those pieces of infrastructure are built out, uh, unless Matthew McConaughey decides that he wants to run as a Democrat for governor in Texas, right, it's going to be tough. Right? So you need to do things like fund a statewide voter mobilization and registration campaign, which in a huge state like Texas will cost you $50 million. Right? Uh, it's going to cost you a lot of money to systematically go through and mobilize people. Uh, we've got to have, during the legislative session, there's got to be, you have to treat that like a campaign. Uh, and when the Republican majority, for example, uh, slashed education by over $5 billion in 2011, there was no paid media around that to point out to the people of Texas what a bad idea that was for the state. So un start, until you start treating that like a political campaign uh, and those issues like a campaign, it's going to be tough. And one other thing that makes it hard in Texas, you know, in Congress, in the U.S. Congress, the system is set up so that people fight a lot. And oftentimes, that's not a good thing. But it is a good thing in that people stand up for what they believe and they stand up for their values. In the Texas State Legislature, the way it's designed, it's designed to squelch strong minority party opposition. And it was that way even when Democrats were in the majority. Let me tell you specifically what I mean. In the Texas legislature, the Republican speaker makes all the committee assignments not only for Republicans, but also for <laughs> Democrats, right? So what that does is it, it essentially makes, it makes people, Democrats, concerned about how the speaker is going to interpret whatever opposition they're going to offer. Uh, in Texas, we actually do have a good tradition of bipartisanship. So of the 44, 45 legislative committees, standing committees, probably about 10 or a dozen of them are chaired by Democrats. That's a good thing because that helps you pass legislation. You know, it means that people from both parties are going to be able to pass their bills. But the trade-off also is that now you've, you've essentially uh, gotten the loyalty of those 10 or 12 Democratic chairmen or chairwomen. You know, so there's ways that you can build an institution such that you, you carve out some of the strong opposition that you would see. Uh, and that has happened in Texas, and that's part of the reason I think that we haven't come back as strong as we could have. Please. 
Hi, my name is Anastasia Valdespino, and I just want to say as a San Antonio native, mm. as a District 20 constituent, yeah. um, and as a product of SAISD and NEISD, it's yeah. really incredible to have you here. and Thank you so much for Thank being you. here. Um, I wanted to ask if you could speak a little bit about, um, this is perhaps a little bit specific to San Antonio, but definitely we can uh, gesture as a nationwide problem as well. Just this idea about gentrification and the way that businesses are sort of displacing communities that have been there for years, I mean, we have uh, Victoria projects that were right off of Durango, now Cesar Chavez, yeah. that um, are now Hemisview with rents that are upwards of $1,000. And while there's Title Eight housing in place that can sort of help mediate that, what, what are your thoughts on the way that um, businesses or housing development is sort of taking away a community that used to belong and to a certain people and just what your thoughts are on that sort of dislocation. Well, it's always a tough balance because in, in distressed areas, right, in the area that I grew up on the west side, I mean, there are houses that are valued at less than $30,000, right? So you want to be helpful in terms of economic development for an area, but there is a tipping point at which, you know, all of a sudden, the people who own houses there or live there can no longer afford the rents or the mortgage, and they end up moving out, and suddenly the neighborhood starts to change a lot. Austin, Texas is facing that issue in spades in East Austin. If you visited up in East Austin, I mean, they're confronting a lot of those issues. So I think that we have to be mindful of how we do development, the pace of development in these different neighborhoods, uh, and also that there are things like rental assistance that are available to folks, you know, so they can continue to afford to live in their homes and their neighborhoods, uh, that there are mortgage assistance programs. Uh, I can't say that there's an easy answer. It's something that cities throughout the country have faced. Uh, my brother has talked about it often as he's gone around the country, you know, on HUD issues. Uh, fortunately, in San Antonio, with some exceptions, but in San Antonio, we've maintained a city that is still much more affordable uh, than a lot of other places, including than, than Austin. I love the city of Austin, but it's a lot more expensive to live there, you know, than it is in San Antonio. And so we've just got to keep working at it. Thank you. You're good for another 10 minutes or so? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Please. Hello, good evening. My name is Adnan Mizian. I'm from New York, but uh, originally I'm an immigrant from Algeria, and I'm a student here at the Kennedy School. You said earlier that you were hopeful that uh, a bipartisan legislation could take place with regards to immigration. Could you tell us some specifics of what that content uh, could be, and in particular with regards to path to citizenship? Do you think there's any way of getting the Republicans to accept a path to citizenship, even if there's an extremely long wait time? Uh, the answer to that depends, I think, in large part on what happens in 2013. Uh, 2013 20, I'm thinking of the bill that didn't pass in 2013. <laughs> what happens in November of 2016? Look, I'll be honest with you. If, if Donald Trump or Ted Cruz win the presidency, I don't see immigration reform happening. Um, you know, if a Democrat wins, if Hillary Clinton wins, I think we've got a much better chance. I think if a Democrat wins the White House, Democrats will also take control of the Senate. Uh, the, the House, you know, as much as I'm... Uh, you know, contribute to the DCCC, and I believe that we can do it. Uh, obviously, we're much in a, in a much bigger hole there. Uh, but I do think if there's a resounding win for Democrats in November, uh, and Republicans feel like, uh, I feel like they may choose their dream kind of right-wing candidate this time. If they feel like they did that, and they still suffered heavy losses, then maybe that will snap back to where there'll be more, a more reasonable uh, response when it comes to immigration reform. Yeah. It's mm -hmm. not clear they have a dream. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, 
you know, it's, it's, it's been something else to watch. But I mean, mm -hmm. I'm still hopeful. I'm optimistic. I think we can do it. And I think we're going to do it in the next few years. Uh, but, but I say that knowing that it's going to be tough. But also, I mean to say it because I don't want anybody to give up on the idea that we can pass it. You know, nobody should. I know you guys aren't going to stop trying, but nobody should give up on the idea that we can do it. And you've got to keep you've got to keep pressing. I will say one thing because uh, I feel strongly about this. You know, the the dreamer movement that was so powerful, especially, you know, in the last few years. But even in 2006, when the last real attempt at immigration reform failed, 2006, 2007, uh, and it was young people who were really leading the charge on immigration reform. It wasn't politicians, uh, and it really wasn't people of my mom's generation. It was more young people. Uh, that was very encouraging to see. But I felt for a long time like that movement needs to also, needs to also morph into a voter mobilization movement, hmm. where it's not just an advocacy movement, but it's a full-fledged mobilization movement. And I think that Donald Trump has been ironically helpful in some ways because you see a record number of people applying for citizenship now, moving from, I think people should not, when somebody is a permanent resident and they've been that way for, and you know, I say this, my grandmother was a permanent resident. She was a resident for 40 years. She got here in 1922. She didn't become a citizen until I think 1961 or 62. Hmm. But I feel like in these times right now, if you're a, an immigrant who is a permanent resident, that you are sitting on the sidelines while many people are getting kicked around, and that you ought to become a citizen and vote. Uh, and so with all of these efforts, I think ultimately we'll get there. Yes, please. Hi, thank, uh, thank you for coming. My name is Placido Gomez. I'm at the School of Education. Uh, previously, I came from San Antonio, Texas, where I taught right. at Burbank High School. Whoa, you got a heavy representation A lot of San Antonians here. here. Yeah. That's right. I feel at home. <laughs> Um, my question is, uh, I'm concerned that the national conversation in politics is too often reduced to who we're going to elect to the presidency, uh, who are the nationally prominent figures, when in reality a lot of change is made in the local government or the super local government. Like yeah. For example, my school board member who gets 5,000 votes often has more effects on what happens in my classroom than the president of the United States who gets more than 60 million votes. Yeah. So as you're gaining national prominence and as your brother is gaining national prominence, my question is, what can you do to ensure that civic engagement in our community goes beyond just thinking about who the next president will be or thinking yeah. about electing nationally prominent Latinos? No, that's a great question. You know, this is the first election where I've spent a significant amount of my time helping a presidential campaign. Uh, I supported Pre Secretary Clinton in 2008. Uh, I, you know, I was helpful to President Obama's reelection, both my brother and I in 2012. But this is the first one where I've really put a lot of time in uh, to the race for president. But you're right. I think that we have to make sure that you have wonderful candidates from school board to county commissioner, city council member, state legislator. Uh, because a lot of government involves local control. In education specifically, you know, the Congress finally passed a reauthorization of the ESSA Act, the Major Education Act. And part of what it did is hand over a lot more power back to the states. And the states hand over a lot of that power to the local school boards. Uh, and so, you know, unless you're ensuring that you have quality people on your local school boards, then, you know, education can get away from you in your city or town. Uh, but also making sure that parents are involved, uh, making sure that, that, you know, that they care about what's going on in their, 
kids' high school. Uh, I've, you know, I've gone to elementary schools, middle schools, high schools, and you see this drop off. You, know, you go to an elementary school PTA and there's 75 people there, and then you go to a high school PTA and there's five people there. You know, and I know in high school there's also the athletic boosters and the band boosters and all, all these other clubs, but you see a drop off in participation. Uh, we have to do everything that we can to combat that. Thank you. What does it mean to be spending a lot of time working with Secretary Clinton? Oh, well, this morning, I was in Providence this morning. Yeah. Uh, I did a fundraiser for Secretary Clinton out there. Uh, you know, I've been to Iowa, I was in Nevada, uh, New Hampshire, Florida, just a bunch of places. My brother's done the same thing, and, uh, you know, we're hoping that she wins. We believe that she'll win the primary and win the general. So. Is he going to be on the short list? Uh, I think that he'll be, I think he'll be considered for the vice presidency. You know, I think there's going to be a half dozen people or more who will be considered. I mean, think about it. You have some very bright stars in the Democratic Party. Uh, you know, Cory Booker, Elizabeth Warren, Tim Kaine, Sherrod Brown, and several others. Uh, so she's got, a, she's going to have uh, a lot of wonderful people to pick from, uh, you know, once she gets to the primary. Tim Kaine will be here soon. Yeah, yeah. he's a good guy. Yeah. yeah, you really could not meet a nicer guy than Senator Kane. Yeah, yeah, please. We'll have a couple more questions, please. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, muy buenas tardes. Oh, gracias. <laughs> Igualmente. Gracias. My name is Cecilia Aquino. I'm at the public health school uh, as a first-year doctoral student. And my question today, I'm curious about your thoughts. Currently, after the passing of the ACA, we still have 32.3 million Americans and yeah. also non-Americans uninsured. Out of that 32.3 million, 15% are undoc undocumented families. And I believe that everyone is deserving of good quality health care. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts? What can we do? What can we start doing um, to cover these families? Well, I think that you have to, you have to make, you have to do everything that you can so that people see these as human beings, fundamentally as human beings, right. who are deserving of health care, you know, who rush to the hospital because their kids get sick, you know, who are who face the same health care challenges as everybody else. Right. Uh, and that's fundamentally that's what we have to convey. And it can be hard to convey it um, only in words, I think, oftentimes when people see it. They come around, right. uh, you know. In, in this country, it's a beautiful country, and people have different experiences. And to a large extent, we are a product of our experiences and our upbringing. Uh, and people's experiences are very different, and we have to be able to reach across to others who have not seen the populations, the undocumented populations, uh, and and somehow help them or get them to understand uh, that these are human beings. But you definitely would favor the undocumented. I think we ought to, we should be able to cover this under, 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 yeah. under Whether it's under the ACA or some other law, we ought to be able to find a way so that these folks have a way to go to the doctor and not go to the emergency room. Thank you. Good. Okay, last couple of questions. Yes, we'll go over here and go over here. Howdy. Uh, my name is Alfredo Garcia. I'm from Austin, Texas. I'm an undocumented student, and I'm a um, candidate for the master's degree program in the Divinity School. So thank you very much for this, your discussion on, on immigration. It resonated with my experience as an undocumented student, but also as uh, 
a student in Harvard, right? It took a long process for me to get the confidence to believe that I could get accepted and uh, come here. Yeah. So, and even if we're as Latinos and undocumented students make it to flagship universities as Harvard, as uh, Texas A&M in Texas or the University of Texas, we may experience exile or feel la like outsiders. So what are some initiatives that you think, in addition to this conference, can be taken in places like Harvard to be able to uh, ensure the growth and the success and the flourishing of uh, Latino and undocumented students? Well, I think for, for Latino students and also for undocumented students, uh, wherever they may come from, I would hope that there are support networks that are built up, whether it's at the undergraduate or in graduate schools, um, for those folks, you know, for folks like yourself, so that they don't feel like a stranger in a strange land, so that you feel like you're at home uh, among friends and colleagues and people who respect you and want to see you do well. Uh, but that takes an effort school by school, uh, and it's something that has to be, has to come from each university, I think. Um, you know, in Texas, uh, of course, we have large institutions like A&M and UT Austin, the Longhorns, uh, and sometimes, you know, UT is almost 50,000 people. So a lot of people go there, you know, uh, they're, they're, they're American-born citizens, and they go there and they feel alone and lost. You know, so I can only imagine if you come here as an undocumented student and go through the experience. Uh, but I think the key is making sure that the schools are setting up support systems. Thank you. Just really quick, uh, what do you think about, about a Latina studies program in Harvard? Oh, I think it'd be great. Latina studies? Yeah. My mom, uh, you know, I wish my mom was here, but, you know, she was really, for my brother and I, uh, part of our inspiration for coming into public service and she was part of, as I mentioned earlier, part of the Mexican-American Civil Rights Movement. She was involved in a third party at the time called the La Unida Party that was a Mexican-American third party. And they challenged what at that time was the Democratic Party, which was so dominant in Texas. But if you look at the history as it's been written about that movement even, you know, it's a lot of the guys and the men that get credit uh, for all of the work and less so for the women. So I think it'd be wonderful. Thank you. This is Cesar Chavez's birthday. Yes. It was he had the inspiration for you? No, absolutely. You know, Cesar Chavez working with farm workers who at the time, uh, you know, were oftentimes cheated out of work, cheated out of wages, um, working in horrible conditions. Uh, yeah, no, he's an inspiration for, I think, many Latinos, obviously, but also for a lot of Americans. And we have one member of our faculty, Marshall Gans, worked with Cesar Chavez way back when. And uh, we still remain very true to that spirit. Please, last question. My name is Salman Hirani. I'm an intern at Mount Auburn Hospital. I'm from Dallas, Texas. I went to the University of Texas Southwestern Medical School. All right. Um, it's uh, kind of refreshing to be in Boston. Uh, coming from Dallas, uh, we were uh, required to tell our patients who uh, wanted to seek out an abortion that uh, an abortion could cause breast cancer, uterine cancer, cervical cancer. You were required all things. to tell your patients? It's in a pamphlet that's standardized by the yeah. state of Texas. And uh, yeah, evidence-based medicine uh, tells us that that's not correct, but somehow politics allows uh, evidence-based medicine yeah. to go out the window. Um, and so how can we change uh, the actual 
I'm not even sure. I'm so confused by uh, the, the wording that's in these pamphlets. Um, how can we change uh, the knowledge that doctors are required to provide patients so that they may get the best access to healthcare possible? Well, all the bill that you're describing, and specifically that pamphlet and the information that has to be given, was part of legislation that was passed in the legislature while I was there. You know, I voted against it, but it, it passed. Uh, and the politics in Texas, as you know, have been difficult. And Donald Trump yesterday, the day before, saying uh, the ugly statement that he did, that, that women should be punished, punished, which suggests that you should pe put people in jail, right, uh, for getting an abortion. That, to me, is going in the wrong direction, right? Um, it's going in the wrong direction and going in a scary direction. Uh, but in Texas, I think we've just got to keep working. You know, I mean, you know the politics of the state. Uh, we've just got to work to change the politics of the state. The question that's hanging over this entire conference is, at Sunbump in your life, you got into politics at 28. You ran, your brother ran at 26. What's your advice to the younger uh, Latino community about getting into public life early? Uh, I think to, first of all, don't let anybody tell you that you're too young to run for office. Um, some cities are better than others about embracing young candidates. Fortunately, and I actually think that the Latino community is good about this, about giving our young people a chance because they see in young people the future. And I think many Americans do that. Uh, but in my city of San Antonio, there were many people who had been elected in their 20s to the legislature, to the city council. Um, so I think don't let anybody tell you that it's not your time um, or that you're too young or you've got to wait your turn. I do think that as somebody who's seeking office, you have a responsibility to prepare yourself well and to study the range of issues that you're going to be dealing with. Uh, so there's a seriousness to that, to be as prepared as you can be, but understand that as a young person, you have just import as important a voice as somebody who's my mom or my dad's age or my age at 41 now. And then also, the last thing is, in whatever you're doing, always try to believe in yourself. You know, I'm convinced now at 41 that the biggest opponents we face in our lives are not other people or things, they're often in our own mind. We're basically battling ourselves. Whether you can, you know, when you think about when you're in high school, you wonder whether you can pass a chemistry class or a calculus class, or whether you can do as well as you want on the SAT or the LSAT or the GMAT or whatever it is. You know, it continues on in your career uh, and believing in yourself. And the way, part of the way you do that is surrounding yourself with people that believe in you because those people really will help lift you up and be angels in your lives who will help you believe in yourself and they'll often see potential in you that you don't quite see in yourself. Somebody will tell you that you're a great writer or you're a great speaker or you would be wonderful at this or that and try to follow those people and keep them close to you. Okay, in a, in a year that has been uh, so turbulent and often discouraging in politics, you bring a wonderfully refreshing voice and a reassuring Thank voice. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Thank you. Thank you.